Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of western Japan on this 15th day of June, 2008. I'd like to take a moment to remind my listeners that the Corbett Report website and podcast is brought to you by yourself. And in order to keep the website growing, expanding, and moving forward in the info war, we need your support. I'd like to remind listeners that you can find our chip-in event on the front page of the Corbett Report website at www.corbettreport.com. We're currently soliciting funds to help buy a new telephone to conduct telephone interviews with crisper, clearer audio quality. Simply go to the corbettreport.com homepage and click on the chip-in event to help donate. And I'd like to thank the listener who did donate towards that event this week and all the listeners who have donated in the past. If you're a regular listener to the Corbett Report and have not yet done so, I'd like to ask that you consider donating to help keep this podcast growing and expanding. I'd also like to remind my listeners that money is not the only way in which you can help contribute to the website. If you have or would like to write an article about recent news events that you think would make a good complement to the articles section of our website, please send it to us through the contact form on the homepage. We'd be happy to take a look at your articles and post them if they are indeed appropriate for the Corbett Report. And on that note, let's get to today's real news. Our first story today comes to us from PrisonPlanet.com, June 13th, 2008. EU dictators may ram through Lisbon Treaty despite Irish rejection. Spearheaded by British Prime Minister Gordon Brown and French President Nicolas Sarkozy, the EU and its member states, in their relentless pursuit of a federal superstate, may break its own laws and ram through the Lisbon Treaty despite its being rejected by Irish voters today. Under EU laws, if one of its member states rejects a treaty, the EU is mandated to scrap the bill. But the European Union's contempt for direct democracy is likely to lead them to ignore the Irish referendum and pursue the implementation of the Lisbon Treaty anyway, underscoring the fact that the EU is nothing more than an illegitimate dictatorship of manufactured consent. The Lisbon Treaty was merely a crude repackaging of the 2005 EU Constitution that was mothballed after being rejected by France and Holland in 2005, whose citizens were barred from voting this time around. Today's surprise rejection of the treaty has been met with total arrogance by British Prime Minister Gordon Brown, whom, according to reports, called French President Nicolas Sarkozy to assure him that British ratification would continue. Our second story this week comes from Reuters UK. Tory David Davis quits over 42-day detention plan. Conservative Shadow Home Secretary David Davis announced on Thursday he would resign from Parliament to fight against government plans to increase the time terrorism suspects can be held without charge. Davis's surprise announcement will force a by-election in his constituency of Halton Price and Howden, north of the Humber, over the controversial 42-day detention plan. I will argue in this by-election against the slow strangulation of fundamental British freedoms by this government, 
he said in a statement to reporters outside Parliament. Davis was a leading critic of the plan to increase the possible pre-charge detention time on which the government narrowly won a Commons vote late on Wednesday. Our final story this week comes from CNN, June 11, 2008. Kucinich introduces Bush impeachment resolution. Representative Dennis Kucinich, a former Democratic presidential candidate from Ohio, introduced a resolution to impeach President Bush into the House of Representatives on Tuesday. Kucinich announced his intention to seek Bush's impeachment Monday night when he read the lengthy document into the record. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has repeatedly said she would not support a resolution calling for Bush's impeachment, saying such a move was unlikely to succeed and would be divisive. Most of the congressman's resolution deals with the Iraq war, contending that the president manufactured a false case for the war, violated U.S. and international law to invade Iraq, failed to provide troops with proper equipment, and falsified casualty reports for political purposes. Kucinich also charges that Bush has illegally detained without charge both U.S. citizens and foreign captives, and violated numerous U.S. laws through the use of signing statements declaring his intention to do so. Welcome, my friends, to episode 46 of the Corbett Report. The internet is dead. Long live the internet. A video is circulating online these days from a group calling itself iPower that has received a lot of attention from the alternative press. This group claims that secret sources inside telecom companies have confirmed to them that there is a plan afoot to make net neutrality a thing of the past by 2012. I won't play the video for you in this episode, as many of you have probably already heard it, but I will put a link to it up in the documentation section of today's episode at CorbettReport.com. The gist of the video is that by 2012, all the major ISPs will have switched to a system very much like buying a cable package for your TV programming. Just as you can buy a package that includes access to a number of different channels, in the future, according to this iPower report, you will be buying a package that includes access to a certain number of websites. Accessing any websites outside of your package will require extra money, thus effectively ending net neutrality, or the idea that all packets of information on the internet can be transferred freely between all points on the internet without interference or degradation from ISPs. Now this is all very worrying information and is quite rightly making a lot of steam on the internet right now, but net neutrality is a well-explored issue, and I invite my listeners to do their own research on that topic and get informed about that particular attack angle seeking to shut down free access to the internet as we know it. All of this may very well prove to be a moot point, however, as it seems there's something altogether new on the horizon. The internet is dead, and here comes internet two. All right, try and keep up with the changes in technology, huh? Well, how about this one? The Internet could be going bye-bye to be replaced by the grid. Time to buy another computer? Well, from PC Magazine executive editor Jeremy Kaplan's here. Good morning, Jeremy. Good morning. The grid can do what? Uh, it's a super, super fast version of the Internet. It's, some are saying it's 10,000 times faster than the current Internet. So incredibly fast, right? Yeah, I would say. You can download an entire feature film within seconds. Exactly. If anybody's ever tried to download a movie online, for example, it could take you a couple of hours to do something like that. Picture doing it instead, eight seconds. Yeah, Incredibly and, and fast. You could, you could uh, what, dial up a phone line, put a camera on the front of your computer, and you could broadcast an HD telephone call by way of this? Absolutely. This is the kind of application we've been talking about for years. Now there's a version of the Internet that's being developed by these guys, uh, particle physicists, actually, out in Switzerland, which could, in theory, do stuff like this. They're bringing it online this summer. They're going to test it out and see how well it works. So uh, are we getting rid of our computer? Well, so here's the thing about this. They're talking about doing it this summer. The first test is this gigantic atom smasher. Assuming it doesn't blow up the world, which there's some talk that maybe it will do, assuming that doesn't happen, um, they'll be testing it for the first year, just collecting the data that comes out of the So we're not throwing out our, our computers anytime soon, by the way. 
Well, eventually there's talk that this will happen. We'll have to create an entire new network here in the U.S., different cables, different infrastructure, different switching stations, all sorts of different well, stuff. Now, now that's an interesting point. What, is this wireless? Is it by way of satellite? Is it cable modem? How is it transmitted? The Internet that we have today is primarily based on phone lines. This will be based on fiber optic lines, which transmit data across light, light waves. So the fiber optic line has to still be installed, but everybody's going mobile right now. So what, you, you go away from the mobile device back to the landline? Uh, exactly, absolutely. Uh, the mobile connections we have today are very, very slow. Compared to, to, to this Internet 2 thing, uh, you, it'll be like crawling down the street. Well, there's a debate as to whether or not this thing will work. Big test this summertime. Thank you, Jeremy. Jeremy Kaplan, PC Magazine. Thank you. It's changing 12 minutes before the hour. Wow, doesn't that sound exciting? Just listen to the clip and listen to the way they talk down to you as if you're a child who can't possibly do any of this research for yourself. These guys, these particle physicists are coming up with this new thing and, oh, after they test their atom smasher that might blow up the world, well, we'll see if that happens. But if not, maybe they can implement this Internet 2 thing. But as the host sagely points out, uh, there's some big questions over whether this thing will actually work, so we'll have to stay tuned and find out whether it's time to throw out our computers. Well, for those of you who don't like being talked to like you're a child who can't possibly do any of this research for yourself, let's start getting into some of the actual research that shows a little bit more about this Internet 2 thing that these particle physicists created. Let's first turn to an article from Slate.com, and for anyone keeping track at home, yes, this is the same Slate, which is an online blog for the Washington Post, which recently ran a ridiculous story apologizing for the press's lack of coverage of the Bilderberg conference by saying, how can the press possibly cover Bilderberg? It's private. And yes, the chairman and CEO of the Washington Post, Donald E. Graham, was one of the admitted attendees of the Bilderberg Conference, but, oh, that's just a minor conflict of interest there. At any rate, they ran a puff piece by Alexander Russo back in 2005 seeking to sell us on Internet 2. The article is entitled, Internet 2, It's Better, It's Faster, You Can't Use It. And it reads in part, quote, There's nothing obviously different or magical about Alan Crosswell's computer. The dirty beige machine sits idle in a nondescript office at Columbia University, where Crosswell directs the school's computer network. Then he lets it loose. In just 2 minutes and 41 seconds, it pulls down more than 500 megabytes of Linux code from servers at Duke University, a task that would normally take hours. Next, Crosswell shows me a violin masterclass held via video conference. The DVD-like resolution creates an immediacy that you can't get with choppy streaming video, and the better-than-CD audio allows both the teacher in Canada and the student in New York to hear every nuance. How are these incredible feats of data transmission possible? Because Columbia has access to the other, better internet. Internet 2. Yes, there is another internet. The term internet simply refers to a network of computers. The one that most of us use is Internet 1, or the commodity internet. Internet 2 was created nearly a decade ago by academics at research universities as a non-commercial prototype. Something like what the internet was back when just a few university researchers were logged onto ARPANET. Like the commodity internet, Internet 2 comprises servers, routers, switches, and computers that are all connected together. Routers decide which way to send information, and servers handle website requests and store information for retrieval. What makes Internet 2 so different is that it has many fewer users and much faster connections. While Internet 1 is open to pretty much anyone with a computer, access to Internet 2 is limited to a select few, and its backbone is made up entirely of large-capacity fiber-optic cables. Rather than Internet 1, which is cobbled together out of old telephone lines, Internet 2 was built for speed. The roads are all wide and smooth, like your own private autobahn. Internet 2 moves data at 10 gigabits per second and more, compared with the 4 or so megabits you'll get using a cable modem. As a result, Internet 2 moves data 100 to 1,000 times faster than the old-fashioned Internet. Internet 2 was never designed to replace the Internet most of us are using now. It's more like a beach or a restaurant. Great when not too many people know about it. Frustrating when everybody and his mother starts to show up. Internet 2's promoters like to compare it to early research networks that fostered the creation of canonical apps like the World Wide Web and email. So, even if you never use Internet 2 to download movies at hyperspeed, you still might benefit from the research. 
Let's just hope they let us use email, too. End quote. Now, of course, that's a complete puff piece that's designed to make this sound like such a wonderful and amazing thing, but so you'll probably never get to use it. So just store this information for later. And here we are three years down the road, and yes, now they're starting to reveal it to us and prepare us for its introduction. Of course, that piece does admit two very important facts, the first being that this Internet 2 network was actually set up a decade before that piece was written, back in 1996. So, in fact, uh, unlike what the editor of PC Magazine told us in that Fox News report, the Internet 2 was not invented by a bunch of particle physicists for use in their big atom smasher in Switzerland. And the second thing that that Slate piece tells us is that uh, the Internet 2 was never designed to overtake or replace the Internet. It's only designed to be used for research purposes. Well, here we are in 2008, and we're hearing the exact opposite. But even back in 2007, Time magazine was running pieces talking about how, in fact, the Internet 2 was going to do that very thing and replace the Internet as we know it. This comes from a piece from Time Magazine from April 13th, 2007, entitled Researchers Explore Scrapping Internet. Quote, Although it has already taken nearly four decades to get this far in building the Internet, some university researchers with the federal government's blessing want to scrap all that and start over. The idea may seem unthinkable, even absurd, but many believe a clean slate approach is the only way to truly address security, mobility, and other challenges that have cropped up since UCLA professor Leonard Kleinrock helped supervise the first exchange of meaningless test data between two machines on September 2, 1969. The internet works well in many situations, but was designed for completely different assumptions, said Dipankar Rechaudhuri, a Rutgers University professor overseeing three clean slate projects. It's sort of a miracle that it continues to work well today. No longer constrained by slow connections and computer processors and high costs for storage, researchers say the time has come to rethink the Internet's underlying architecture, a move that could mean replacing networking equipment and rewriting software on computers to better channel future traffic over the existing pipes. Even Vinton Cerf, one of the Internet's founding fathers as co-developer of the key communications techniques, said the exercise was generally healthy because the current technology does not satisfy all needs. One challenge in any reconstruction, though, will be balancing the interests of various constituencies. The first time around, researchers were able to toil away in their labs quietly. Industry is playing a bigger role this time, and law enforcement is bound to make its needs for wiretapping known. There's no evidence they are meddling yet, but once any research looks promising, a number of people will want to be in the drawing room, said Jonathan Zittrain, a law professor affiliated with Oxford and Harvard universities. They'll be wearing coats and ties and spilling out of the venue. End quote. Indeed, the Internet, too, as it's known, is not some mysterious, shadowy conspiracy theory like the unidentified sources that iPower has claimed have told them about the end of net neutrality. It's a very real organization, and you can go visit their homepage at internet2.edu. To get more information about Internet 2 and what an unmitigated good for humanity it is, let's listen to a video from USC Thornton School of Music, where a Dr. Brian Shepard, who you can find as one of the people promoting Internet 2 on even Internet 2's homepage, talks about the Internet 2 network architecture, what it's capable of, and its significance. Almost everybody these days, of course, is familiar with the Internet, this uh, global network that allows computers to connect to each other. Um, that actually came out of a joint research project back in the 60s and 70s between a number of universities, government entities, and corporate entities trying to find a way to hook their computers together, and one thing led to another and to another and to another, and it eventually evolved into this thing we call the Internet. Unfortunately, that particular network was really not designed to do the kinds of things that we want to do now. We want to see movies online. We want to download songs. We want to communicate with each other. The original Internet in its design and the way it's physically structured is designed really primarily for handing strings of text information back and forth. Um, in the mid-90s, uh, an organization 
sort of bubbled up from a number of primarily university researchers who were interested in trying to develop the next generation internet that was capable of handling all the types of things that we're currently trying to do on Internet One, if you will, or the commodity internet as it's often referred. Uh, that organization became known as Internet Two, and uh, I've been actively involved with the organization since uh, 1999 and been uh, involved in a number of research projects, primarily in the realm of music distance education. Uh, one of the things that has been really quite interesting for, for not only me, but in fact many of the people involved in Internet 2, was how much the demands of the fine arts were on the network capabilities. Uh, when you take a, a scientific process or something, and you need to move this massive amount of information from point A to point B, which is the, the typical use that, that you find a lot of scientists and such using, if it takes a tenth of a second longer to get from here to there, nobody cares. But if you and I are trying to talk to each other, and primarily if we're trying to talk in a musical sense where you can understand the timbre of the sound that I'm making, where you can hear the nuance of the tone quality I'm producing, and we can do that in a live situation, that requires no interruptions. It requires a massive amount of continuous throughput that the commodity internet isn't capable of doing. And what happened was, as Internet 2 started to develop, a lot of the, the, fish, the, the hardware and such that was in it was based on commodity types of, of devices, routers, switchers, things like that. And uh, many of the, the, the companies that made that sort of stuff realized very quickly that their equipment didn't hold up in that kind of environment uh, of the sort of constant streaming of massive amounts of inter information. And so they began redesigning and uh, sort of rebuilding and repurposing some of the devices that they had. And we got to sort of test and, and break and fix and all that sort of stuff. And what's happened now is the things that we've done in Internet 2 have started to find their way back into the commodity Internet. And so companies that are producing those sorts of things, they look at our research and say, ah, we can fix this, we can make this better. Now you can go to iTunes and download a song very quickly or a movie or what have you, uh, stuff that was really not possible even just a, a few years ago. Uh, and most of that has come about as a result of so much of the research that uh, myself and many of my colleagues around the country and, and truly now around the world have been involved in in the Internet 2 community. We have people that are primarily interested in how do the, the, the little bursts of light actually go through the fiber. So we have people working at that level. We have people that are interested in those devices that those fiber cables connect to. How do they work? We have people interested in writing the software that controls the Etc., etc., etc. I think you can get the gist of that from just what I've played there, but if you really want, you can go to the documentation tab, as always, at CorbettReport.com and watch the video in its entirety. Well, that combined with the other whitewash pieces that we've read so far, make a pretty compelling case that the Internet, too, is an unmitigated good for humanity. Indeed, what could anyone have against such a wonderful high-speed system which will only seek to improve on what the Internet has so far established and will make things possible that were once completely unthinkable, like live DVD resolution video conferencing? It sounds like a win-win all around. Until, that is, you actually start to look into what's taking shape and the way it's going to be spun. An indication of that comes from an excellent article that's available on prisonplanet.com. It's called MySpace is the Trojan Horse of Internet Censorship, and it was released back on March 16, 2006. This article reads, quote, MySpace isn't cool, it isn't hip, and it isn't trendy. It represents a cyber Trojan horse, and the media elite's last grasp effort to reclaim control of the Internet and sink it with a stranglehold of regulation, control, and censorship. Since Rupert Murdoch's $580 million acquisition of MySpace in July 2005, it has come from total obscurity to now being the eighth most visited website in the world, receiving half as many page hits as Google, despite the fact that on first appearance it looks like a five-year-old's picture scrap and scribble book. MySpace is the new mobile phone. If you don't have a MySpace account, then you belong to some kind of culturally shunned underclass. 
What most of the trendy Wendy's remain blissfully unaware of is the fact that MySpace is Rupert Murdoch's battle axe for shaping a future internet environment whereby electronic dissent, whether it be against corporations or government, will not be tolerated and freedom of e-speech will cease to exist. MySpace has been caught shutting down blogs critical of itself and other Murdoch-owned companies. They even had the audacity to censor links to completely different websites when clicking through for MySpace. When 600 MySpace users complained, MySpace deleted the blog forum that the complaints were posted on. Taking their inspiration from communist China, MySpace regularly uses blanket censorship to block out words like God. Earlier this week, Rupert Murdoch sounded the death knell for conventional forms of media in stating that the media elite were losing their monopoly to the rapid and free spread of new communication technologies. Murdoch stressed the need to regain control of these outlets in order to prevent the establishment media empire from crumbling. MySpace is Rupert Murdoch's Trojan horse for destroying free speech on the internet. It is a foundational keystone of the first wave of the state's backlash to the damage that a free and open internet has done to their organs of propaganda. By firstly making it cool, trendy, and culturally elite for millions to flock to establishment-controlled internet backbones like MySpace, Murdoch is preparing the groundwork for the day when it will stop being voluntary and become mandatory to use government and corporate monopoly-controlled internet hubs. The endgame is a system similar to, or worse than China, whereby no websites even mildly critical of the government will be authorized. The Pentagon admitted that they would engage in psychological warfare and cyber attacks on enemy internet websites in an attempt to shut them down. The fact that the NSA surveillance program spied on 5,000 Americans tells us that the enemy is the alternative media and that it will be targeted for elimination. Google has been ordered to turn over information about its users by a judge to the U.S. government. The second wave of destroying freedom of speech online will simply attempt to price people out of using the conventional internet and force people over to Internet 2, a state-regulated hub where permission will need to be obtained directly from an FCC or government bureau to set up a website. The original internet will then be turned into a mass surveillance database and marketing tool. The Nation magazine reported, Verizon, Comcast, BellSouth, and other communications giants are developing strategies that would track and store information on our every move in cyberspace in a vast data collection and marketing system, the scope of which could rival the National Security Agency. According to white papers now being circulated in the cable, telephone, and telecommunications industries, those with the deepest pockets, corporations, special interest groups, and major advertisers, would get preferred treatment. Content from these providers would have first priority on our computer and television screens, while information seen as undesirable, such as peer-to-peer -peer communications, could be regulated to a slow lane or simply shut out. The original internet will deliberately be subject to crash upon crash until it becomes a useless carcass of overpriced trash and its reputation will be defiled by the TV and media barons cashing in on the perfectly streamlined internet too, the free-for-all network that just requires you to thumb-scan in order to log on. Those with a security grading below yellow on their national ID card will unfortunately be refused access. Websites that carry hate speech, ones that talk about government corruption, will be censored for the betterment of society. For the aspiring dictator, the internet is a dangerous tool that has been seized by the enemy. We have come a long way since 1969 when the ARPANET was created solely for U.S. government use. The Internet is freedom's best friend and the bane of control freaks. Its eradication is one of the short-term goals of those that seek to centralize power and subjugate the world under a global surveillance panopticon prison. Rupert Murdoch's MySpace and its ceaseless promotion by the establishment media as the best thing since sliced bread is part of this movement. In saying all this, we do encourage everyone to set up a MySpace account, but only if you're going to use it to bash MySpace and Rupert Murdoch, and copy and paste this article right at the top of the page. See how long it is before your account is terminated. End quote. Well, that article, written two years ago, seems outdated simply for doting on MySpace, but if you just replace MySpace with Facebook, you'll have an update for the year 2008. Or did you think that Facebook was any different in the way it's become the media darling 
and the simply must-have account for everyone on the internet. Do you have a Facebook? Have you thought about the privacy you put at risk? Facebook allows users to post their favorite music, books, movies, their address, hometown, phone number, email, clubs, jobs, educational history, birth dates, sexual orientation, interests, daily schedules, exactly how they are related to friends, upload pictures of themselves, and even political affiliations. Its privacy policy even goes so far as to state it also collects information about you from other sources, such as newspapers and instant messaging services. This information is gathered regardless of your use of the website. Think that's scary? The Facebook's term of service state, by posting member content to any part of the website, you automatically grant and you present and warrant that you have the right to grant to Facebook an irrevocable, perpetual, non-exclusive, transferable, fully paid, worldwide license with the right to sublicense to use, copy, perform, display, reformat, translate, excerpt in whole or in part, and distribute such information and content, and to prepare derivative works of, or incorporate into other works, such information and content, and to grant and authorize sublicenses of the foregoing. <laughs> Have you seen the Facebook's Pulse feature? Pulse provides statistical trends among universities down to minute details such as percentages of females with conservative views, the student body's top 10 movies, and percentage of students who have read Catcher in the Rye. The so-called privacy policy goes on to say that they may share your information with third parties, including responsible companies with which they have a relationship. Can you think of any marketing group who would pass up buying such valid yet easily collected statistics such as these and others? So maybe they're using us. But is there more? The first venture capital money totaled at $500,000 came to the Facebook from venture capitalist Peter Thiel, founder and former CEO of PayPal. He also serves on the board of radical conservative group Vanguard PAC. Further funding came in the form of $12.7 million from venture capital firm Excel Partners. Excel's manager, James Breyer, was former chair of the National Venture Capital Association. Breyer served in National Venture Capital Association's board with Gilman Louie, CEO of InQtel, a venture capital firm established by the Central Intelligence Agency in 1999. This firm works in various aspects of information technology and intelligence, including, most notably, nurturing data mining technologies. Breyer has also served on the board of BBN Technologies, a research and development firm known for spearheading the ARPANET, or what we know today as the Internet. In October of 2004, Dr. Anita Jones climbed on board BBN, along with Gilman Louie. But what is most interesting is Dr. Jones' experience prior to joining BBN. Jones herself served on the board of directors for InQtel, and was previously the director of defense research and engineering for the U.S. Department of Defense. Her responsibilities included serving as an advisor to the Secretary of Defense and overseeing the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. This goes farther than just the initial appearances. DARPA shot to national fame in 2002 when knowledge of the existence of the Information Awareness Office came to light. The IAO stated its mission was to gather as much information as possible about everyone in a centralized location for easy perusal by the United States government, including though not limited to internet activity, credit card purchase history, airline ticket purchases, car rentals, medical records, educational transcripts, driver's licenses, utility bills, tax returns, and any other available data. All of the above raises more questions than answers. Perhaps if the Facebook wishes to stay ethically sane, it should enact the policy. What happens in the Facebook stays in the Facebook. Now there's absolutely no doubt when you actually start to look into it that these mega sites like Facebook, which collect every aspect of your personal information, have been funded and used by the Department of Defense, the Central Intelligence Agency, DARPA, and the Information Awareness Office. And it makes things like the NSA's wiretap program, which the Bush administration admitted does a lot more than has come out in the mainstream media, look a little bit foolish. Why invest in the technology to put a back door in every internet communication hub in the country, in fact, every telecommunications hub in the country, as the NSA did by federal law in 1996, when you can get people to submit all of their data on their entire personal history for free? to a wonderful and nifty little site like Facebook. Well, the way in which the internet is being used to track and trace every single possible piece of data about you 
is undoubtedly an extremely important topic, and thus one that we'll have to give proper consideration to in a future episode of the Corbett Report. But the point is that all of this data tracking and tracing chicanery from sites like Facebook and Google become a completely moot point under Internet 2, where indeed the entire system will be government-regulated and controlled to the point where you will have to apply for permission to host your own website, and it will be really nothing more than a MySpace page. So now the trick lies in getting people off of the old internet, where the government has to rely on tricks and chicanery and back doors in order to get information from users, to the new internet, where everything will be regulated. So how can they do this? What mechanism will they use to make the old internet disappear? Well, how about the same mechanism that they use every time? Fear. Some people think the internet is a bad thing. Somewhere your identity can be stolen, your home invaded, and your savings robbed without anyone setting foot inside your door. It is one of the most dangerous weapons ever created. A way for the unhinged to spread evil free of supervision or censorship. A place for mankind to exercise its darkest desires. An open market where you can purchase anything you want. Orwell was right. The internet has taken us to a place where everything we do is watched, monitored, and processed without us ever realizing. Some people think the internet is a bad thing. What do you think? Are you afraid yet? The internet is out to get you. Well, it might be surprising for some of you to learn that in fact, that was an advertisement for AOL, an internet company, who was at the time running a campaign to have a discussion about the internet and its value for society. Of course, there was an opposite ad for that same campaign, which talked about the good aspects of the internet as well, but only the bad internet version was played on British television. Interesting indeed. And this is undoubtedly part of a very old and ongoing smear campaign about the internet, which is all building to a certain conclusion, which I think is not very difficult to see. Let's take a look at just a few of the hundreds or thousands of examples of this smear campaign against the internet, which is taking shape online. Oh, irony of ironies. And let's start with a BBC News article from Wednesday, 6th of October 2004, entitled A Webwise Terror Network. It reads in part, quote, The capture of alleged Al-Qaeda computer expert Mohammed Nayam Nur Khan by the Pakistani authorities in July brought with it an unprecedented haul of high-tech intelligence. Speaking in London last month, America's Homeland Security Chief Tom Ridge said the volume of potential information was the largest we've ever seen. I mean, potentially millions and millions of pages of information, and revealed that intelligence officers had yet to decipher it all. Communications have always been an essential part of Al-Qaeda's strategy, but the internet and email have become even more important in recent years. They have provided the terror network with new possibilities, but, as the Khan case illustrates, fresh vulnerabilities too. The terrorists have fully exploited the modernization of communications to their advantage, says Sajan Gohel of the Asia-Pacific Foundation. The Al-Qaeda ideology can be very well served on the internet. It is able to purport its agenda, goals, and ideology probably better on the internet than any other means. End quote. Now, the idea of an extremely high-tech arm of Al-Qaeda taking advantage of modern technology and software is extremely interesting given last week's episode of The Corbett Report, episode 45, P-Tech and the 9-11 Software, in which we examined the very real links between Al-Qaeda-run terrorist organizations and the most advanced software operating in the most sensitive agencies of the U.S. government, with U.S. government approval and consent. Of course, this story does not mention the P-Tech story perhaps unsurprisingly. No, this idea of Al-Qaeda using the internet is propagated down through stories 
in subsequent years, like this one, also from BBC News, from 26th of October 2006. Anti-terror plan targets internet. Quote, Ministers from the six largest European Union countries have agreed to work together to make the internet a more hostile place for terrorists. Home Secretary John Reid said they would seek to crack down on people using the web to share information on explosives or spread propaganda. The ministers also pledged to fight international VAT fraud following a meeting near Stratford-upon-Avon. This cost the UK £30 billion a year, some of which funded terrorism, Mr. Reid said. He said the interior ministers wanted to use the internet and other media to target young audiences with messages from secular Muslim role models rather than those believing in radical ideologies. End quote. Nor was this discussion only taking place in Europe. From Reuters around the exact same time, October 17, 2006, this report, Web could be terror training camp, Chertov. Quote, Disaffected people living in the United States may develop radical ideologies and potentially violent skills over the Internet, and that could present the next major U.S. security threat, U.S. Homeland Security Secretary Michael Chertov said on Monday. We now have a capability of someone to radicalize themselves over the Internet, Chertov said on the sidelines of a meeting of International Association of the Chiefs of Police. They can train themselves over the Internet. They never have to necessarily go to the training camp or speak with anybody else, and that diffusion of a combination of hatred and technical skills in things like bomb-making is a dangerous combination, Chertov said. Those are the kind of terrorists that we may not be able to detect with spies and satellites. End quote. Luckily, though, the United States Central Command was working on the issue. At almost the exact same time, October 16, 2006, Raw Story released this report. Raw obtained CENTCOM email to bloggers. Quote, An email sent by United States Central Command to bloggers about the global war on terror has been obtained by Raw Story. CENTCOM announced earlier this year that a team of employees would be engaging bloggers who are posting inaccurate or untrue information, as well as bloggers who are posting incomplete information. The email was not addressed to Raw Story. The main interest is to drive their readers to our site, Major Richard J. McNorton, Chief of CENTCOM Engagement Operations, said in a March release. In the same announcement, McNorton said that the emails have a viral effect, as many bloggers then link to the CENTCOM website, driving internet news consumers to CENTCOM's website. Now online readers have the opportunity to read positive stories. At least the public can go there and see the whole story, he insisted. The public wants to hear those good stories. End quote. Of course, that story makes it sound like all CENTCOM is doing is sending helpful email reminders to bloggers, and that's the extent of their engagement operations. Yeah, right. Well, let's take a look at this BBC News article from earlier that year, 27th of January 2006. U.S. plans to fight the net revealed. Quote, a newly declassified document gives a fascinating glimpse into the U.S. military's plans for information operations, from psychological operations to attacks on hostile computer networks. Bloggers beware. As the world turns networked, the Pentagon is calculating the military opportunities that computer networks, wireless technologies, and the modern media offer. From influencing public opinion through new media to designing computer network attack weapons, the U.S. military is learning to fight an electronic war. The declassified document is called Information Operations Roadmap. It was obtained by the National Security Archive at George Washington University using the Freedom of Information Act. Officials in the Pentagon wrote it in 2003. The Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld, signed it. The roadmap calls for a far-reaching overhaul of the military's ability to conduct information operations and electronic warfare, and, in some detail, it makes recommendations for how the U.S. armed forces should think about this new virtual warfare. The document says that information is critical to military success. Computer and telecommunication networks are of vital operational importance. The operations described in the document include a surprising range of military activities, public affairs officers who brief journalists, psychological operations troops who try to manipulate the thoughts and beliefs of an enemy, 
computer network attack specialists who seek to destroy enemy networks. All these are engaged in information operations. Perhaps the most startling aspect of the roadmap is its acknowledgement that information put out as part of the military psychological operations, or PSYOPs, is finding its way onto the computer and television screens of ordinary Americans. Information intended for foreign audiences, including public diplomacy and PSYOPs, is increasingly consumed by our domestic audience, it reads. PSYOPs messages will often be replayed by the news media for much larger audiences, including the American public, it goes on. End quote. And on the heels of that incredible story, we have this story from this year, May 12, 2008. Air Force Colonel wants to build a military botnet. This comes from Wired.com. Quote, While most government agencies are struggling to keep their computers out of the latest Russian botnets, Colonel Charles W. Williamson III is proposing that the Air Force build its own zombie network so it can launch distributed denial-of-service attacks on foreign enemies. In the most lunatic idea to come out of the military since the gay bomb, Williamson writes in the Armed Forces Journal that the Air Force should deliberately install DDoS code on its unclassified computers as well as civilian government machines. He even wants to rescue old machines from the junk bin to enlist in the dot-mill botnet army. Brilliant! The best defensive minds in the country want to build a massive distributed computing system to do nothing but pump crap into the internet. The article talks about carefully targeting attackers' machines, but this ignores all the intermediate networks between the Air Force and the target, which will have to contend with a flood of garbage packets whenever some cyber Dr. Strangelove decides to go nuclear. What's next? Air Force 419 scams? Dot mill phishing attacks? The most disappointing thing about this irresponsible proposal is the tacit admission that our elite cyber warriors can't actually break into an enemy's computer, instead resorting to a brute force attack designed by web defacement script kitties eight years ago when Apache servers got too hard to hack directly. End quote. Of course, the incredulity with which that blogger on Wired.com greets the news that the Air Force wants to create these botnet armies to pump crap into the internet makes sense when you realize that the long-term goal is in fact to deface the internet, to bring it down, to submit it to crash after crash, as we learned from that PrisonPlanet.com article, which talked about Internet 2 and how it will be brought in by the defacement of the original internet. Those are just some of the stories dealing with this topic, and perhaps those stories give the impression that it's only the Americans and the Pentagon that are actively engaged in these types of nefarious dirty tricks and smear campaigns against the internet. This is most assuredly not the case, as evidenced by an article from the Corbett Report from December 29, 2007, entitled Japan Clamps Down on Internet. It reads in part, quote, Yaku.jp released a report Thursday entitled Regulating the Japanese Cyberspace One Step at a Time, which details how reports tabled by the Japanese government over the past month have begun a process of regulating every aspect of the internet in Japan, from file sharing to mobile phone internet access to web content. Even user-generated blogs will be affected by these new regulations. One of the most chilling passages of this extensively researched article reads... Online content judged to be harmful according to standards set down by an independent body, specifics of which are unclear, will be subject to law-enforced removal and or correction. The idea of possible legal actions being taken against purveyors of web content which a government-appointed body deems harmful is more reminiscent of communist China than the free society most associate with Japan. Perhaps this is just another indication that Japan is not such a free society after all. These Orwellian controls are not likely to be limited to Japan either. Earlier this year, Tony Blair was calling for internet censorship, and curiously, this crop of Japanese legislation has been tabled at an almost exactly the same time as an almost exactly identical set of restrictions has been introduced in Australia. Can the US and Canada be far behind? End quote. People interested in the development of that story may look to an article from this week from Kyoto News, June 12, 2008, with the headline, Diet enacts law to regulate harmful websites. 
which basically finally confirms this information in the mainstream controlled corporate media and is just an attempt to condition people to the reality of this new cyberspace world. Of course, in addition to all of these attacks on the internet, we have the old standard attack that the internet is dead because it's just not technologically feasible anymore. It's not capable of keeping up with the amount of traffic and the different ways in which it's being used. This is a ridiculous old fairy tale that's trotted out from time to time, and will continue to be trotted out until people believe it, probably as these military botnets get to work and start bringing down sections of the internet, and people start wondering why the internet isn't working so well anymore. Well, there will be this ready-implanted solution, which has long been fed to us in a psychological operation to make us think that the internet is incapable of keeping up with the demands of modern internet users. Of course, this was being pandered even back in 1998, ten years ago. And that comes from a CNN.com article entitled, Is the Internet Dead? October 27, 1998. Quote, At a recent Wall Street Journal conference at New York's World Trade Center, two telephone company CEOs actually said the Internet is dead. I want to assure you that it is not. Bogging and collapsing, maybe, but not dead. Here come the Internet's next generations. CEO Bill Esri talked about Sprint's ION. With acronyms including SONnet, ATM, and DSL, ION will become the kind of network that Sprint customers really want. Not the old Internet, which is dead, really. CEO Rich Notebart, who once wrote an op-ed in the journal saying the Internet is dead, scoffed at the idea that Ameritech and other telephone companies don't get it. And then he actually let it slip again. I was just 15 feet away and said the internet is dead. I am not making this up. Dead. Of course, maybe it depends on what the meaning of the word dead is. Maybe these CEOs mean that the current internet must soon be replaced by a next generation network, the one they are building for us right now, so the current internet is, well, dead. As I tried to explain in New York, the internet is distributed in several dimensions, and one of the Internet's beauties is that it can evolve separately at many points along these dimensions. And evolve it does. There is in fact not one Internet 2, see www.internet2.org. There are many next-generation Internets, each evolving at its own pace, and some of these are evolving very rapidly indeed. This apparently confuses telco executives. Here are some next-gen Internet evolutions. The internet is incorporating one service after another. The original remote login internet was followed by the file transfer internet, the electronic mail internet, and the newsgroup internet. Then with the World Wide Web, we got the web publishing internet. Now it's the electronic commerce internet. What next? The telepresence internet? These internets aren't arriving neatly one after another, which is complicated. Perhaps telco executives would find it easier thinking of the internet as an integrated services digital network, ISDN for short. Now, that's dead. Along another dimension, the internet is built in protocol layers. Releases of your e-commerce applications appear above the layer at which HTML is becoming XML. HTTP evolves below that, TCP below that, IP below that, Ethernet and ATM and SONNet below that, wave division multiplexing below that, and optical fibers below that. And then there are the major next-gen internets. The gigabit internet is arriving as the 45 megabyte per second circuits mostly comprising the internet's backbones are upgraded to 2.4 gigabytes per second and beyond. This upgrading is in full swing thanks to rapid advances in wave-divided optical fibers. The direct access internet is arriving as dial-up kilobit circuit-switched modem access is replaced by continuous megabit packet-switched access. This upgrading starts ramping in 1999 thanks to fierce competition among UADSL, DOCSIS, and many local access dark horses. The IPv6 internet will, among other things, expand IP addresses from 32 bits to 128 bits, thereby solving the internet's own Y2K-like problem. The QoS internet will be able to carry more than just today's best effort service. With high enough quality of service, the use of voice and video will grow rapidly. Then perhaps we'll see the telephone and television internets. 
The pay-as-we-go internet will have various meeting and billing mechanisms allowing internet users or their advertisers or governments to pay for the resources they consume. This will help coordinate growth of the internet by using price to communicate between supply and demand, and it will create playing fields for fierce competition on price and new technologies. If the internet is dead, long live the internet. End quote. Now, while that article might be a bunch of technological gobbledygook to some of you out there, I think the point to take away from that is that the internet is not some monolithic entity which is growing old and must be completely replaced from scratch with this marvelous new internet too that, oh, by the way, will just happen to be completely and utterly regulated. No, the internet is a distributed network that was precisely designed to be flexible, malleable, adaptable, that there is no one core architecture that defines the internet, that in fact the internet is necessarily always evolving and parts of it are always being replaced, upgraded, and expanded. It's ridiculous to say that the internet will have to be demolished altogether to make way for this new internet too, which once again must make us question what is the need to push this internet to. And even those who aren't afraid of government regulation and control over their lives, although they should be, because of course, historically speaking, governments are always the thing which people should fear the most. But even looking at it from the perspective of corporations having control over your life, you should still be quite concerned. And that's the point of today's episode of The Corbett Report. Although I do support the iPower team and their efforts to get awareness to the net neutrality issue, I do think that it's important to note that there are a number of vectors of attack that our enemy is using to try to take away the internet. And I don't think I need to stress this to CorbettReport.com listeners, but the importance of the internet in breaking through the lies of the corporate-controlled media cannot be underestimated. I'm always reminded of watching the biography of the millennium round about the turn of 1999 to 2000, when A&E was presenting their 100 most influential people of the last thousand years. Even at the time, I thought it was a bit of a ridiculous idea, but I watched anyway, and was quite delighted to find that their number one pick for the person of the millennium was Johann Gutenberg, the man who invented the printing press. That's an extremely subtle and extremely perceptive choice for the person of the millennium. It would be easy to overlook this man, but it would not be easy to imagine a world without the printing press. Likewise, it's difficult at our point in history, from our perspective, to really understand how incredibly revolutionary that invention was and how much it shaped the development of human civilization. It expanded and opened up the sum total knowledge of human information to a degree never before seen in human history and never really replicated until the internet. The internet represents something even orders of magnitude greater than what the printing press stood for. We have come out of a dark age of relative information deprivation into a time where not knowing something is simply not an excuse. We have the sum knowledge of humanity at our fingertips, and we are breaking down centuries of psychological manipulation and control by the financial oligarchs who have had a stranglehold on the information about the way our world is really being governed. Think about all of the things that you would have no idea about if it were not for the internet, this podcast just being one of many. The fight to keep your access to this incredible resource, probably the most single important invention in the evolution of human society, cannot be stressed enough. You owe it to yourself to go out and research the different vectors of attack that is taking place on the internet right now and get involved in helping to keep access to this, our most precious resource. What is your password? Your password has been accepted. That's it for today. I am your host, James Corbett. Join me again next week.
for another edition of the Corbett Report. Cyborg soldier, a techno warrior. Computer, camera, optical display, all connected to the world wide web. Personal cybernetic, cybernetic technology, technology, personal cybernetic, cybernetic. Pioneering the computerized lifestyle. The world wide web. The world wide web. Some people think the internet is a bad